When we come to the Eighth Commandment, we'll take up the whole question of the free market and, um, and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm going to defer that question because of time. Now we come to a school of thought that is uh, usually called hierarchicalism. Uh, an example of a Christian hierarchicalist. Hierarchy, of course, uh, comes from the word for high priest. See that there's an order of priests, a structure of uh, authority. And there are people who say that the laws of God must be put into a hierarchy so that you always obey the higher law when two come into conflict with each other. The assumption here is that there really are genuine ethical conflicts where two norms from God's word demand different responses to a particular situation. There either are irresolvable conflicts among norms which overlap or else you redefine the norms to the point of dying the death of a thousand qualifications says Norman Geisler. He says there really are irresolvable conflicts. And yet he doesn't want to condone the view that, that we are to do the lesser of two evils, holding the individual guilty of doing his best with a bad situation, which is unavoidable. That is, uh, it isn't right to hold a man guilty for breaking the lower norm. Geisler says two norms come into conflict, and you must create a hierarchy between them. And the violation of the lower norm is not something for which you are to be held guilty. And therefore, we're left with hierarchicalism, where you resolve the conflict by following the norm which is intrinsically higher in the value scale. This is, this is doing, he says, the highest good, not doing the lesser evil. Therefore, the individual is not guilty for breaking the lower norm. That's the school of hierarchicalism. There are irresolvable conflicts. You must then put the laws of God onto a, sta onto a scale of value. You follow the highest good, and you're not guilty thereby of doing the lesser evil. Um, and, that, and that's basically it. The position can be summarized in this way. Whenever norms conflict, one is morally right in breaking the lower norm in order to keep the higher one. There is an ordered scale of values which in and of themselves are objectively binding on men. When values happen to conflict, a person is exempted from the otherwise binding obligation to the lower norm in view of the preemptory obligation to the higher norm. He is not guilty for this in view of the overriding duty to the higher norm. Lesser goods must give way to greater goods. One is obligated to, to do the highest good possible. All right, the Gestapo comes to the door. If you tell them the truth about the Jews you're hiding in your basement, then, of course, it leads to the death of innocent people. If you lie to them, then you're violating the Ninth Commandment. But if you see that human life is a higher value than simply speaking the truth to evil men, then what you do is you follow the higher value preserving human life, and you're not really guilty of violating the lower one, because we must always do the highest good available to us. That's the position of Geisler. Well, I have some difficulties with this position, as you might guess. Um, and it, it really, <laughs> I knew I was going to do this when I decided to teach this class and, and only had so much time, but it still um, makes me feel uneasy to run through some of these you know, definite schools of thought so quickly. Joseph Fletcher in five minutes and Norman Geisler in five minutes and all that but we've got to. My problems would be these. Uh, Geisler admits that anybody who says you have to do the lesser of two evils is, is, uh, is speaking ethical nonsense. The obligation to do the lesser of two evils makes no sense at all. That is to say, it is morally right to do that which is morally wrong. It is morally right to do that which is evil. Now, it's the lesser of two evils, but nevertheless, it's evil. And so it's sometimes right to do what is wrong is what that amounts to. That's just moral nonsense. 
And so he says, my view doesn't amount to doing the lesser of two evils. My view amounts to doing the highest of two goods. Had a very good argument? I dare say it's nothing more than a linguistic sleight of hand. That's like saying that the Coke bottle that I have here is not half empty, it's half full. And so I don't have the problems with those people who argue against half-empty Coke bottles. It's only a linguistic difference, I believe. All right. Secondly, Geyser says that a person becomes exempt from a lower value in the face of an overriding higher value. He also wants to say that there is a plurality of absolute rules. He doesn't... Fletcher said... <laughs> I'm going to get this right. Summarizing sometimes takes longer than just reading the notes. <laughs> Geisler, the hierarchicalist, says of Fletcher, the situationist, that the problem with Fletcher is that he only has one absolute norm, love, and it doesn't have any content and so forth and so on. And so Geisler doesn't want to be reduced to situationism, saying that we just have to follow love whatever the situation dictates. He wants to believe, consequently, in a plurality of absolute values. Not a single absolute value, but a plurality. Now, if he wants to hold to a plurality of absolute values and nonetheless says that we are exempt from lower values in the face of overriding values, then I dare say he does not have a plurality of absolute values. I probably have to write this down. He wants to preserve a plurality of absolute values. Now, what's an absolute value? One where there are no exceptions. An absolute is that which is radical. That is, it doesn't admit of qualification. Okay. Now, if it is an absolute value that I am to tell the truth, then that is to say that it admits of no exceptions, no qualifications. However, what Geisler is saying is that when that absolute value conflicts with this absolute value in this situation, that one is exempt from the lower value. But if one can gain exemption from a value, then it's not absolute. It admits of qualification, an exception. Consequently, Geisler has not preserved a plurality of absolute values in his hierarchicalism. Everybody follow that? That's what it's called an internal critique of the man's system. He doesn't accomplish what he lays out to accomplish for himself. Thirdly, uh, Geisler offers certain alleged biblical evidence for degrees of merit and blame. Uh, for instance, that servant that is beaten with many stripes over against the one that has few stripes. And he says that supports hierarchicalism, higher and lower values. But in fact, it doesn't. Because the greater and the lesser responsibility depend on aggravating circumstances in the Bible. To whom much is given, much is required. So where there is an abundance of revelation and light and preaching of the gospel, there are higher responsibilities or a greater responsibility than for those who have not had the advantage of special revelation and so forth and so on. Uh, fourthly, Matthew 23, verse 23, where Jesus speaks of the weightier and, and uh, lighter matters of the law, that passage does not argue for an assessment of priorities requiring that we do the weightier matters and leaving the lighter matters undone. For Jesus says explicitly there, talking about heavier and lighter matters of the law, weightier and lighter matters, that you ought to do the weightier without leaving the other undone. And therefore, Geisler doesn't get any support there. Fifthly, no matter what the human reason may be, we do not ever have the luxury of breaking even the least commandment, Jesus said in Matthew 5.19. And James 2, verse 10 says that those who violate the law in one point have violated the entire law. 
Consequently, if Geisler is uh, saying that uh, we can break one of the lighter laws in deference to a weightier one, what he's saying is we have the right to break the entire law because breaking at one point breaks all of the law. Okay. Um, sixthly, the whole discussion that Geisler gives us here is predicated on the premise that there are unavoidable and irresolvable conflicts between God's norms and actual fact. That we can get into a situation where the law of God puts us in a contradictory circumstance. But I think that's contrary to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, where we're taught there's no temptation given us uh, where we don't have a way of escape, where there isn't some way of pleasing the Lord. God never puts us in a situation where we have to violate his law, his will. Uh, moreover, we've already talked about this since Jesus underwent every temptation, every category of temptation like we do, then he too would have had to face some of these irresolvable conflicts, which means he too would have had to break one of the lesser of the laws of God, which is to say he wasn't a perfect lamb of God and therefore can't qualify to be our savior. And so I'm going to leave off the rest of the criticisms. Those, I think, are heavy enough to, to let the matter rest. We can do away with um, situationism and hierarchicalism both then. And uh, that's basically how I wanted to finish out my discussion of the law of God. The pitfalls to disputing the law of God, question of law and liberty, law and love, and then law and conflict. Okay, I'm just going to take a few questions. Okay. Hierarchical. Uh, is the Decalogue only idea fall into that category? The Decalogue is the overriding or the overriding principles, and therefore they supersede the case laws or higher in. A person could say that. I mean, it's conceivable that somebody would argue in that way. They'd be wrong, I believe. Um, but I haven't heard a lot of people argue in that way. Those who say we don't have to keep the case law because we only keep the Ten Commandments are not explicitly hierarchicalists because they don't believe those laws conflict with each other and therefore you defer to the higher law over against the lower. That's the essence of hierarchicalism. Annie? Well, some of his examples, I think, are misled because he uh, thinks of the law as being absolute when, in fact, God gives exceptions to those generalized commandments. Well, I mean, the Eighth Commandment forbids taking that which doesn't belong to you, but in war we do take that which doesn't belong to us. I mean, in a wartime situation, it's considered moral to steal the ammunition of your enemy. And so that would be an exception to the commandment, thou shalt not steal. Uh, the Ninth Commandment amounts to not deceiving people. We are not to use our communication to deceive people. All right, so let's say that I'm in a football game, I'm the quarterback, I come up to the line and I realize that the other team has stolen our signal. All right, so in the huddle I've changed, you know, the numbering system for the next play, and the audible that I call from the line is saying one thing to the other team but a different thing to my team. I'm deceiving them. The violation of the Ninth Commandment? No, because there are situations where it's understood that, that is, that's part of the game. We're going to try to deceive you. Part of the game is to not be deceived. And so there are exceptions to almost every one of the laws of God. I can't think of an exception to the first law. Yes. We'll take... We'll try to answer that when we take up the Ninth Commandment, okay? The last night of our course, we'll be talking about the whole issue of lying to preserve human life. And I'm going to wait till then, because I just, I think we better get on to other things rather than to get into that particular issue. Annie, what, what I've taught here is that hierarchicalism is contrary to the Word of God. Now, if I come to the conclusion that it's all right, let me use Rahab as my example, for Rahab to lie then I'm not going to have the option to argue that it's all right for her to lie because she had to do the lesser of two evils. 
Okay, I've, I've, I've excluded that now. And so if I argue that, I'm going to have to argue that the Word of God sanctions that exception. Okay, and then maybe I won't do well on that argument, maybe I will, but that issue has to be settled separately. The point here is that you cannot argue it's all right to make an exception to one of God's commandments when God doesn't give the exception himself. Here the person is saying, we have these laws, they come into conflict, and therefore we've got to judge which is the, which is the most important. We do the higher value and exempt ourselves from the lower. And I'm saying that the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. Anybody who, who breaks the law of God at even one point even the lightest of the commandments, or the least of the commandments, to use Jesus' words, has broken all of the law, James says. And therefore, I think that there is not any room for hierarchicalism in a, in a reformed ethic. Greg? Uh, in one sense, the Bible... Uh, I, I'm hearing in some... that uh, In one sense, the Bible has a hierarchicalism. The classic is, we must obey God rather than men. We have the commandment to obey men. But it's a biblical hierarchicalism. <laughs> yeah. No. Remember, the essence of the system of hierarchicalism is not that there are weightier or lighter matters to the law. I mean, if that were all it were, then we'd all be hierarchicalists. The essence is that we can violate the lower laws in deference to the higher laws in situations of conflict. And I'm saying that's wrong. We cannot ever violate a lower law of God just because it's lower or lighter, to use the biblical metaphor. You understand what I'm getting at? Okay, well, what I'm, and what, what I'm trying to get at is, is that the, the, the example that's given is the state commands you, you know, do such, such and such, and the law is that you should, you know, obey, okay. obey those. Now, I grant there's a built-in exception to that. But, right. But, uh, but in a sense, they're saying that's, they're just framing that and saying that is a hierarchy because in this case, you must obey God that's higher than obeying men in this case. Well, that isn't what the Bible says, though. In other words, that's building something in to the... That's an, an explanation of that situation that then is going to allow you to go on in other circumstances to create a hierarchy and do that. But there's no hierarchy alluded to, although we may grant that certainly God is higher than men and that sort of thing. But it's just that God tells us that his commands come first. And uh, so it's not a question of, of violating lower commandments in deference to higher ones, because there we're not violating any lower command at all because we are not obligated to obey the sinful commands of men. And I realize to some of you that may seem like hair splitting, you know, but it's a very significant hair that's being split because uh, I've argued with, with Dr. Geisler in uh, evangelical theological society meetings, and, and if you look at some of the examples he gives um, for an application of his ethical thesis um, with respect to abortion or euthanasia and some of these other things, you might be justly offended. Up to this point, we've been discussing three approaches to Christian ethics. We've looked at the situational approach, pursuing the goal of ethics. We've looked at the existential approach, looking at the moral agent. And we've looked at the normative approach, looking at the law of God. Uh, with this, my comments are complete then, as to the motive, the goal, and the standard of ethics. What I want to do now is to take up a separate unit and talk about Christian social ethics. Is it possible for you to change gears that quickly? We've been, we've been talking about this triangle, you see, for all these weeks. And hopefully we've given a, a fairly full picture of the triangle, although I haven't said everything that, that could or should be said. But I hope I've given you some beginning for your own study into these issues. I want to now turn and look at the, um, the subject of social ethics, which is uh, an area of great controversy among Christians today. 
uh, and it's an area of uh, great difficulty because some very difficult decisions have to be made in the area of society from a Christian normative standpoint. What I'd like to discuss, although I'm sure I will not finish tonight, is first of all Christ and culture, then secondly the church and the state, and then finally capital punishment and war as particular issues of social ethics that we need to come to some uh, decision about. I'll begin with a question of Christ and culture, however, and I'm going to look at what is the implicit battle between humanism and theism. I need to give your minds a second to, to make that transition. Everything I'm going to say now is going to be in the area of corporate or social ethics, civil ethics, assuming that we've integrated all that we've learned so far about the goal, the motive, and the standard of ethics. We know what the goal is, we know what the motive is, we know what the standard is, we know what some of these elementary ethical problems are, and now we're going to tackle the, the larger question of social ethics. According to the Bible, man's impulse toward cultural development is God-given. It's a God-given gift. For instance, you'll notice that art and technology in Genesis, the fourth chapter, verses 21 and 22, are God-given gifts. However, the development of culture is also man's duty. It's not only a gift to man that distinguishes him from the animals, but it's also a duty of man. In Genesis 1, 26 through 29, we see that God commanded man to subdue the earth. That duty is renewed in Genesis, the ninth chapter, verses 1 and following, where Noah is to subdue the earth. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, we are to disciple the nations. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 to 23, we learn that all things belong to us, even the world. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, we learn that we are to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In 1 Peter 1.15, we learn that all manner of life is to be made holy, set apart to God's service. And so on and on, we can see that man has a duty then to bring all of his activity, his thoughts, his culture into submission to God. God calls man to a progressive growth in culture as elementary to subduing the earth. However... Notice now that culture, culture itself can aspire to full autonomy from God. We see that in the story of the Tower of Babel. Here is man building a culture which is in its very nature aspiring to set its own laws and to be separate from God. Culture can try to usurp divine prerogatives, and thus culture must be restrained, culture must be directed by godly men who understand properly the divine plan and have been redeemed by the Lord Messiah, who, according to Isaac Watts, came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. How far is the curse found? Well, let's look at Proverbs 21, verse 4. You get a good idea how far the curse is found. We know that Adam's fall into sin brought curse upon the earth itself, so that even you know, the plants bring forth thorns and thistles. Man must earn his living by the sweat of his brow. Proverbs 21, 4 says, A high look and a proud heart, even the tillage of the wicked, is a sin. Which is to say, the plowing of the wicked is sinful in the eyes of the Lord. Even plowing can be sinful. I realize some of your translations have lamp there, but the preferred translation is tillage. Um, and Isaac Watts said that Jesus came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So the blessings of redemption extend even to plowing, if you will. Culture will either place its confidence and find its guidelines in man, 
or it will place its confidence and find its guidelines in God. Humanism, as an outlook in philosophy, would regain the lost paradise of man in its own wisdom and strength. However, the church would see paradise regained by the recovery plan and the power of the triune God. Indeed, the Christian understands that present culture is only allowed to remain, only allowed to expand by the grace of God. For the Bible says that God withholds his judgment for the sake of the elect, that God insists on fulfilling his kingdom promises, that God will not surrender history and the world to Satan. And that's why there's an inevitable clash between the city of God and the earthly city of man. What is to be the key factor in culture's development? What should be the key factor in the development of the arts or in the development of industry and the in development of agriculture or the development of science or what have you? What should the key factor be in culture's development? What religious commitment, what faith, what ethic, what goal shall determine the course of events? Christianity is a complete world and life view, but so is idolatrous unbelief, a complete world and life view. And therefore, there is of necessity a conflict between humanism and theism. I want you to see that it is not a matter of choosing whether we will engage in the battle in Christ's name to regain culture and development in Christ's name. It's not a matter of whether, it's not an option for us to choose that battle. We're in that battle. You can't avoid that battle. For everything you do, even the plowing of the ground, is either sinful or glorifying to God. There is an implicit battle then between humanism and theism in all walks of life. Now there are certain attitudes, going on to the second point, certain attitudes that have developed throughout the history of the church with respect to the relationship of Christ and culture. We can summarize those attitudes, uh, I think, fairly simply in terms of the uh, categories Richard Niebuhr offered in his, uh, in his book, Christ and Culture. Niebuhr says, first of all, there's the attitude of Christ against culture. He gives us examples of this. Tertullian, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens, although I don't think he understands Tertullian. Uh, monasticism, you know, withdrawing from culture, being ascetic, not enjoying the pleasures of life and daily existence and that sort of thing. There you have Christ against culture. Christ is in war against culture. Are there any in the evangelical church who... Uh, belong to this category of Christ against culture? Rapture people. <laughs> <laughs> Rapturism, yes. <laughs> the attitude, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship, right? Uh, we're just trying to convert a few souls and prepare for Christ to pluck us out of this evil world. Fundamentalism in general uh, usually expresses a Christ against culture attitude and it's uh, we don't want to be worldly. We don't dance, we don't uh, smoke, we don't chew, we don't go to movies, we don't play cards, you know, that sort of thing. Now, some of those conclusions may be proper conclusions, but the point is this Christ against culture, a negativity toward the world and culture. The Niebuhr says there's also an attitude of Christ uh, of culture, the Christ of culture, where one's version of Christianity is acculturated. All right, culture determines what your Christianity is. And he sees examples of this in Origen and Clement, who believed that the Greek philosophers were Christians of a latent nature, and so uh, Greek philosophy could determine what was said in Christian theology. Uh, this can also be found, I think, in liberalism, 
liberalism lets the attitude of the day, the status quo, the cultural attitude uh, determine what is preached in the Christian church from the pulpit. Uh, secular versions of Christianity would be of the same category. The Christ of culture, where Christ is reformed in the image of culture. And then there's also Christ above culture. The attitude of Christ above culture can be found in three different approaches. First, synthesis. Synthesis means taking two theses and bringing them together. Okay, you synthesize or blend together two things. Okay, Christ is above culture means culture contributes something, Christ contributes something in a synthesis. Uh, who, um, who might be an example of a synthesis approach that says Christianity really fulfills human values? Culture is all right as far as it goes, and Christianity fulfills those values. Thomas Aquinas, because he said that grace perfects nature. All right? Another example of Christ above culture would be dualism which says that man is really subject to two moralities, a Christian morality and a cultural morality. And so Christ is above culture in that he has his own ethic that has to be followed in addition to the ethic of your culture. There's really two kingdoms. A uh, famous theologian called this the kingdom of the right hand and the kingdom of the left. Who are we talking about? Martin Luther. Exactly. Okay, so... Here you have Thomism and its synthesis, Lutheranism and its dualism. And then we come to our final example. And after all my strictures against traditionalism, you'll know that I'm not appealing to the veneration of Calvin. But in the Calvinistic tradition, there's been the idea that Christ transforms culture. All right? Calvin said that Christ transforms man's fallen culture so that we must bring a reconstruction to every area of life according to the standards of God's Word. This basically, then, are the kinds of attitudes that you'll find even today in the Christian church with respect to the relationship of Christ and culture. Christ is against culture, or culture is reforming Christ in its own image, or Christ is above culture by way of synthesis or dualism or transformation. And I believe that the Word of God teaches us that the relationship of Christ to culture is that Christ is to transform all of life. You notice that the Bible teaches we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are to preserve our society. We are to scatter the darkness of our world round about us. Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. The will of God is to be done on earth, and that is the coming of his kingdom. I've already mentioned how 1 Peter chapter 1 says that all manner of living is to be sanctified unto the Lord. So whether you're plowing the ground or uh, engaging in medical science, you should be doing this unto the Lord. All that activity should be sanctified to his service. The proverb says, out of the heart are the issues of life. And therefore a man who has a renewed heart by Christ is going to have a the issues of his life are going to be dictated by that renewed heart, no matter what area of life we're talking about. To see that all of culture must be subject to Jesus Christ and his dictates, we can look also at James 1, verse 17, where James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every gift that a man has, if a man has an ability in drafting, if a man has an ability in music, if a man has an ability in medicine or an ability in business or what have you, every good gift is given by God. Every vocation that a man has, every ability that he has to, 
to, uh, to use is given from God and therefore must be used in the service of God. The cultural mandate had said in Genesis 1, verse 28, that man was to subdue every area of life to God's service and his kingdom, put it to the use of God's kingdom. Look at Colossians 1, verses 16 and 20. Paul there says, For in Christ were all things created in the heavens and upon earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things have been created through him and unto him. Everything that has been created has been created for the sake of Jesus Christ. Everything is to be done unto him. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things upon the earth or things in the heavens. You see, all things have been reconciled through him and unto him. So both creation and redemption serve the purpose of what? Subduing everything to the purposes of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, a well-known injunction from the Apostle Paul says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so a farmer who is out there tilling his ground, if he does it unto the Lord and to uh, pursue the kingdom of God and according to the standards of God, is not doing it in vain. All of his labor, you see, can be in the service of his Lord. And one final passage, Romans 11, verse 36. Paul says, For of him and through him and unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Unto him are all things, whether in business or athletics or the military, academics, what have you. So I think the scripture would support the idea that Christ transforms all areas of life. We're to subdue every aspect of life under the cultural mandate. We're to disciple every nation uh, because of the Great Commission. We're to do all things to the glory of God. Now let's take up a question. If, if we agree in the attitude we should take that Christ transforms culture and that we are in fact in the midst of a battle between humanism and theism in all walks of life, nevertheless there is a question that has arisen today that troubles a number of believers. And that question is what which is prior or which is more important the cultural mandate that is subdue all things all walks of life all vocations to the glory of God or the evangelical mandate that we should go about preaching the gospel so that men are converted and become believers what is the goal what is the aim of our Christian living today is it the cultural mandate to fill the earth and subdue it or is it the Great Commission to disciple the nations and teach them the sacraments? Which has priority? The Great Commission or the cultural mandate? Now don't think that this can be simply dealt with. There are those who take very seriously this debate. Now, when I was in seminary, it was a very, very important debate among people who were writing in the Reformed camp. Because there were those who teaching the idea that Christ governs all walks of life and the Word of God applies to all areas of life, who were saying that their work was in fact more central to the coming of God's kingdom than was the work of those people who were out evangelizing and buttonholing people with John 
And on the other hand, there were a number of people, usually categorized as pietists, who were saying, look, all of this is secular stuff, this Christian politics and Christian labor unions and Christian medical societies, that is all outside of the central scope of the kingdom, which has to do with making people right with God. Now, which of these is correct? Which is prior? Which has the priority? Which is more important? The cultural mandate, so that all areas of life are made subservient to the kingdom, or the Great Commission, so that men are made believers in Jesus Christ and have their sins forgiven. I think you can do one without the other. <laughs> but I do want to relate the two in a way. Let me see if I satisfy you, and we'll come back to your question, Annie. How do we relate these two mandates? That becomes the question for Christian social ethics right now. And I think this whole notion of priorities can be very ambiguous. We're asking about what has the priority. And that word priority can be very ambiguous. I think there are many ways in which things can have priorities. The various difficulties and problems have arisen in the church over the whole argument of priority. Remember the Corinthian dispute over leaders and gifts, which had the priority? And so, arguments over priority can have detrimental spiritual effects in the church if we don't handle them properly. And what I'm going to argue is that we must see a reciprocal relation in Scripture uh, between the cultural mandate and the Great Commission. And I'm going to argue that simply in terms of this issue of priorities. Let's look, first of all, at the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate, um, the first, first place to look at the cultural mandate might be the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3, verse 15. It sounds like I'm going to be talking about the evangelical mandate, but I want to talk about the cultural mandate here. And my point is that the redemptive promise of God, which is what the Great Commission deals with, God's redemptive promise, the redemptive promise of God takes the form of the cultural mandate. God's redemptive promise comes in the form of the cultural mandate. Genesis 1.28, which is where the cultural mandate is originally found, is this. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, there are two aspects to the cultural mandate then. Filling the earth, which has to do with reproduction, and then subdue it, which, if you will, uh, has to do with bringing the earth into submission, the technological side. So we have earth and technology, if you will. I'm using technology in the broadest sense. The cultural mandate is fill the earth, reproduce, subdue the earth, have technological control over the earth. And my point is that if you'll look at the Proto-Evangelium, the redemptive promise of God is given in the form of the cultural mandate. God promises redemption along with his curse. And what he says is that the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. In the meantime, man is to labor. So notice, victory, redemptive victory is going to come how? Through reproduction, through the seed of the woman. Through reproduction, which is the cultural mandate, the redemptive promise will be fulfilled. Secondly, in the meantime, Adam is to continue controlling and subduing the earth as he is now restated in the land as a means of living to him. Then look at the promise of Abraham in terms of salvation. In his seed shall all the nations bless themselves. And at the same time, there is the promise of a land to Abraham and to his people. In his seed, in reproduction, the nations will find redemption. And then the earth is given to him. A promised land is given to Abraham or promised to Abraham. 
Or look at the Davidic covenant later on in the Old Testament. The Davidic covenant has that same twofold pattern, a promise of a seed to David who will then occupy the throne, the throne over a particular country, the land of Israel. And he will expand his rule over all nations to cover the whole earth, if you follow Psalm 72 as well. And then finally you come to the climax of God's redemptive promise in the New Testament in the uh, life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are told, comes born of a woman. There's the reproductive side of the cultural mandate. And all power and authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. He gains the redemptive victory over Satan and subdues all of our enemies under our feet. Moreover, believers, according to the New Testament, are called the seed of Christ. Again, the reproductive metaphor. And all things, even the earth, is said to belong to believers. All right, what's my point? Over and over and over again, if you study the redemptive promise of God from the very first giving of it in the Proto-Evangelium through Old Testament theology into its New Testament fulfillment in Christ and even the doctrine of the church, you'll see that redemption is categorized in terms of the cultural mandate. The redemptive promise and fulfillment take the form of the cultural mandate. And I think that implies a kind of primacy to the cultural mandate. All of man's work is defined in terms of seed and subduing, in terms of reproduction and technological control of the earth. This cultural task takes on a redemptive significance, however, after the fall of man. And so the birth of children anticipate the coming of the Messiah, and the subduing of the land is preparation for the kingdom of the Messiah. And thus redemption is a kind of subsequent subdivision of the cultural mandate. Redemption is a special kind of subduing and reproduction in terms of the prior mandate of God. Redemption is an application of the cultural mandate. Therefore, in answer to the question of which is prior, the answer is the cultural mandate is prior. It's historically prior, and it sets the terms of the redemptive process. So it's definitionally prior as well. Moreover, according to the Bible, the redemptive mandate, the gospel, is a means to the fulfilling of the cultural mandate. Those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ should now try to glorify God in all walks of life. Man's heart must be changed if he is to obey God's requirement in every area of life, to have every, every area of life subdued to God. The nations must be converted and discipled so that they can be taught to obey God's commandments. And thus the evangelical mandate is calculated to serve the cultural mandate in the end. To have every, every area of life subdued to God. The nations must be converted and discipled so that they can be taught to obey God's commandments. And thus the evangelical mandate is calculated to serve the cultural mandate in the end. Alright? What I've argued up to this point is that the cultural mandate is prior. It's prior historically, it's prior definitionally, and it's prior ultimately in that redemption enables us to keep the cultural mandate. Let me say it one more time. The cultural mandate has the priority historically because it was prior to the fall of man. It has the priority definitionally because it sets the terms for the redemptive mandate. And finally, it has the priority ultimately because redemption serves the ends of the cultural mandate. The kingdom of Jesus Christ fulfills what Adam should have done for the Adam fallen into sin. But having said this about the cultural mandate, we now have to look at the evangelical mandate. 
And what I'm going to argue is that it has a priority over the cultural mandate, but of a different sort. This is, I think, one of many, many types of illustrations of the uh, legitimacy of splitting hairs in the Church of Jesus Christ. This whole question of priorities, which has caused havoc and has caused dissension in the Church, I think, can be resolved not by fighting for one over the other, but by rather distinguishing the different senses in which one thing is prior over the other. I've given you three senses in which the cultural mandate is prior. Now let's look at the Great Commission, or the Evangelical Mandate. In Scripture, the goal of ethics is never presented without a specific redemptive focus. The goal of ethics is always given with a redemptive focus. It's important, I think, that we, uh, that we think not simply about God's general kingship, his general metaphysical or moral rule and sovereignty over man. In the Bible, God's kingship is seen as his specific historic activity of defeating his enemies. And that presupposes that there are enemies, that there is sin and Satan to overcome. Man needs to be brought into willing submission to a savior king, not just to a king. And that's why we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That presupposes that God's will is not being done on earth at present, but it must be. It's a prayer that God's perceptive will be done. The goal of human life has an explicit redemptive focus then, rebellion being turned into submission. That's redemption. In 1 Corinthians 9, 18, you notice what Paul says. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel without charge, so as not to use to the full my rights in the gospel. Paul's goal is making the gospel known without charge. Isn't interesting? His goal is that of saving men, and his goal is his own partaking of the gospel as well. Verses 21 through 23. To them that are without law as without law, not being without law to God, but under law to Christ, that I may gain them that are without law. To the weak I become weak, that I might gain the weak. And become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. And I do all things for the gospel's sake, that I may be made a joint partaker thereof. Paul does everything for the sake of the gospel, then. In Matthew 6, verse 33, we read, Seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. This absolute priority is God's kingdom. And all other things, like food and clothing, are relative priorities. They come after seeking first the kingdom of God. Paul was willing to make known the gospel without charge, without the cultural benefit, you see, of his pay, because the gospel was paramount. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these other cultural things will come in after that. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, a far more crucial thing than eating or drinking is the kingdom of God and his glory. And there it's specifically the redemptive kingdom of God that Paul is speaking of. So then, in the goal of ethics, redemption has a kind of primacy. It's the proximate goal. The Great Commission is our proximate goal. It has a primacy in that sense. What is immediately before us and what must be accomplished if the earth is to be subdued, renewed, and restored is bringing them to a willing submission to God's sacred sovereignty. And there's a certain urgency about that. Paul said he would forego benefits so that men might be saved. That's why in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is willing to give up his ordinary cultural things for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of winning them to Christ. And in that sense, the evangelical mandate can transcend cultural pursuits. The cultural mandate must serve 
and the cultural mandate must accede to the evangelical mandate. It is sometimes right to forego our cultural privileges to bring God's redemptive claim on men. And so we can conclude this section of our discussion by saying that the evangelical mandate, the Great Commission of Squire, serves as a means to aspire to its end. If the redemptive mandate is the means to the end, then it has that primacy of the means that must be fulfilled in order that the other might be fulfilled. Secondly, the evangelical mandate is prior because it has a specific focus as the goal of human life in this age. God's kingdom in this age must be a redemptive kingdom because man is fallen. And then thirdly, the evangelical mandate has a priority because it has an urgency that can transcend ordinary cultural pursuits. The evangelical mandate has a priority because it is the specific focus or goal of human life in this age. Pursuing God's kingdom today must be the pursuit of a redemptive kingdom because we live in a fallen world. And then finally, the evangelical mandate prior because of its urgency it can transcend ordinary cultural pursuits. So let's come back to our question that has tormented for the last decade the Reformed Church. Who really is more holy? Those who are engaged in building up all walks of life in the kingdom of God, Christian politics and all that, or those who are giving their lives to go to the mission? Which is closer to the heart of God? Which has the priority? Which has the ethical advantage over the other? Which could we prefer? Don't give a simple answer. There are different kinds of priorities. The cultural mandate is prior, historically, definitionally, and as the ultimate goal. But the evangelical mandate is prior as a means. It's prior as the specific focus of human life today, and it's prior as having an urgency that the cultural mandate does not have. And so don't make it a question of either or. Don't give a consistent answer here, or else the church, I think, will fall into you know, further and further disputes, and um, we're just going to have difficulty because we have gotten caught up with an ambiguous word, the word priority. Okay? In our unit on social ethics, then, I'd look at Christ and culture in terms of the implicit battle between humanism and theism. We've looked at various attitudes, Christ against culture, the Christ of culture, and Christ above culture, in particular, I argued, that the Bible supports the attitude that Christ should transform culture, all walks of life. We've now talked about the cultural mandate and the evangelical mandate and tried to relate them to each other in terms of three different sets of priorities for each. The last question under this unit of Christ and culture is what is the standard for social ethics? We now see that there's a battle going on. We see that we must believe Christ is transforming our world. We must engage in both the evangelical and the cultural mandates with their respective priorities. So what standard do we use in this battle? Well, I believe that the Christian should hold that God has moral standards and requirements for social morality and for political responsibility, just as he does for private and personal morality for the individual. We cannot think that God has delivered moral standards that govern us individually, but then what happens in our state, in our society, is something that goes beyond the interest of the Word of God. God has moral standards perfectly as well as individually. All right, where do we find these standards of God? Where are God's moral standards for society? If you say that they are to be found in natural law or personal intuition or reason or something like that, I frankly think you'll be led to endorse arbitrariness in social ethics 
will be led to endorse the status quo in social morality, and in one form or another, you will finally be led to the view that might make right. So what happens in the state is a matter of power and expediency in politics, not a matter of principle and morality. If somebody says that there are no revealed standards for social morality and political ethics, then they preclude having an appeal against the state or culture to a higher law which directs and judges the activities of our social leaders. If there is no realm of morality above the state to which an appeal can be made against the vices of our leaders and our magistrates, then there's no logical barrier to tyranny. Now, there may be men who will oppose tyranny, but there's no logical barrier to tyranny. The minute you say that the state does not have the law of God above it, then you cannot appeal to a moral standard above the state to say that the state is wrong in what it's doing. And if the state cannot be judged as wrong in anything that it does, then the state logically can become a tyranny to us. Moreover, if there is no standard of morality above our society to which we can appeal, then individual rights will turn into individualism and anarchy. Where every individual has the right to do any society that he wants, because there's no moral standard above the society. Consequently, there must be revealed standards of right and wrong for choice and morality, or one will have both tyranny and anarchy together. And the Christian can deny that God has revealed standards of right and wrong only at the cost of, first of all, polytheism. You see, if you believe that there are standards of right and wrong for the state, but they aren't found in God's word, then what you really have is a, a, another God, another Lord over the state. There's one Lord for individual morality and another Lord for corporate morality. And Jesus said, a man cannot serve two masters. They either love the one and hate the other and vice versa. There is one Lord over private as well as public morality. Or else they have polytheism implicitly. Moreover, you can deny that there are revealed standards of right and wrong only at the cost of denying the scriptural truth that God judges sinful magistrates. Just think, if you will, one passage here in Psalm 82. God stands in the congregation of God. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and respect the persons of the wicked? Judge the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. What does that mean, God stands in the congregation of the gods? God stands in the congregation of Elohim, the gods. The judges in Israel could be called gods. Remember how Jesus refers to the psalm when the Pharisees, you know, are passing for calling himself God? He says, no, look, because even Old Testament magistrates could be called gods. Is it such a great offense to you that I should call myself God? Now, I won't get into the logic of, of Jesus' argument, but the point here is that magistrates are considered gods because their judgment is for God. They are the deputy of God. They are ordained of God. They are the magistrates over the people because they are first the ministers under God. And here the psalm says that God stands in their congregation. He judges the judges. And he will condemn those judges who will not rule according to his moral standards. So if God judges sinful magistrates, you can be sure there is a moral standard above magistrates that must be reflected and respected. So this brings us finally to that question I told you we get to it after quoting. Remember I said that there are moral standards for the magistrates. Earlier we argued when we were into the law of God, uh, unit on the law of God, that every one of God's laws is binding today. Does that mean the laws of God in the Old Testament 
have to do with political and social morality, laws binding the civil magistrate are still binding today? In a sense, I've already answered that question. I think we've answered it from about a dozen different perspectives. And you cannot deny that according to the word of God, that those laws are binding today from moral standards. But here I'm approaching the issue from another angle. I'm saying, you believe that there are moral standards. As a Christian, you must believe there are moral standards over the civil magistrate. Well, what are they then? If they're not the standards of the Old Testament. And so we need to ask about this alpha sorting. How do you choose which of God's revealed standards you will retain and which ones you will reject? That is, I'm asking, in concrete cases, what is your rationale? On what principle do you create a theme in the law of God? So you can follow laws up to that point, and you come to the theme and you say everything after that we don't follow. I'm going to give you some examples, and I want you to indicate where you stop. Which old, what is the principle that says which Old Testament standards can't be followed? The Bible says thou shalt not covet. Is that binding in the New Testament? The people are inclined to say, yeah, yeah, of course. God doesn't want these bad spiritual attitudes. You can't covet. All right? You shall not murder. Now, that's not an internal private thing. That's not an external act. Then if you say, oh, yeah, you're not supposed to murder today. But still, coveting and murder are found in the Ten Commandments. So that's right. You see, it's the Ten Commandments is our standard. Then you say, how about defrauding? The Old Testament doesn't allow defrauding. That's not part of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus called the rich young ruler, thou shalt not defraud. And he cited that when he was reading off others of the Ten Commandments. He put it on the same level with the Ten Commandments. So we don't want to say that it's... Somebody might say only internal commandments bind us, coveting and stuff like that, but that's not true, because, you know, we obviously don't want to lie for murder today, and that's kind of last. Somebody says, well, only those things that are in the Ten Commandments bind us, but that's not true, because it's defrauding that's outside the Ten Commandments. Jesus didn't allow that. Well, how about case laws like muzzling the ox? Is that binding today? Can't muzzle the ox? So you know from the New Testament that it is. So your principle can't be we follow the Ten Commandments or general commandments but not case laws. How about man stealing? Is it all right to steal men today? What we call kidnapping, that he just called men stealing? Yeah, but I mean that does that is violence to somebody, right? I mean that, that's just sticking the freedom. So how about don't afflict widows and orphans. Is it all right to afflict widows and orphans today? The Old Testament law said it wasn't. Most people don't want to afflict widows and orphans today. That's not a question of going out and actually stealing people, doing violence to their bodies. Well, the Old Testament says, return what you find. Today, do we have to return those things that you find? Or is it find the people's loses leases? No, it still seems reasonable and loving to return what we find. You see, it's beginning to get very difficult to find where in the Old Testament you're going to draw the line. Let's go on. Don't have an open pit or a growing up. Are you allowed to have open pit? Can we present safety hazards to our neighbors and have a growing off to an open pit? No. Well, maybe, maybe the principle is this. All of God's law binds people in certain relationships now. Yeah. And it doesn't work to have this internal external, this Jekyll inside, outside the Jekyllog, or general command versus case law command, or what does violence people over against what you do just by not helping people out. I mean, we want to keep all those laws. So if somebody says, the principle of division is, in certain relationships, people got to keep the law of God, but in other relationships, you don't. And so let's see what relationships are still binding today. Husbands don't commit adultery. Is that binding today? No, obviously the laws on husbands are binding. Children obey your parents. Those binding? No, husbands and children are covered. Fathers, 
Simon. Maybe we can give him a quick modification so we don't have to keep the law of God now. Simon, blessed on the Sabbath day. Anybody want to say farmers are not supposed to rest on the Sabbath today? No, farmers are sorry. How about merchants? Merchants have equal measures, that is, a just weight and standard. You know, the butcher who has two scales, and when the Jewish person comes in, it's his friend, he puts the meat on the one scale, the after and his Gentile enemy comes in, he puts the meat on the other scale, that weighs it heavier than it actually is. That's unjust, isn't it? Does anybody think that the Old Testament law can be violated at that point? No. Hmm. Husbands, children, farmers, merchants, a lot of people getting covered here. Where the rub comes is with magistrates, right? The whole idea that God's law should buy magistrates, that is really the tricky area, okay? The Old Testament says magistrates don't be drunk. Anybody think magistrates ought to be drunk today? Make their judgments in a uh, state of mind that's not sober? No. So it seems like the private standards on magistrates we want to hold on to today. How about the public standards? Magistrates execute murderers. Well, you want to be breathing capital punishment for murder today. Magistrates are supposed to execute murderers. So it won't do any good to try to draw the division between private standards of the magistrate and public standards of the magistrate. Do you realize all the different options we've gone through and rejected? How difficult it is to find the principle now? Coveting, murder, defrauding, muffling loss, man-stealing, afflicting widows and orphans, returning what you find, don't have open pits or going often, husbands don't commit adultery, children obey your parents, farmers rest on the Sabbath, merchants have each their measures, magistrates don't be drunk, magistrates execute murderers. Nobody's willing to say, no, throw those off as out. My principle says reject those. I'm going to add just one more to the list now. Having given, since you've given up all these other principles inside, outside the Decalogue, general versus particular, internal, external, this walk of life, that walk of life, private magistrate, standard, public magistrate, since you've given up all those divisions, how about this one? Magistrates don't suffer a whip to live. All of a sudden, our modern society jumps back in horror and says, execute riches today? Of course we don't do that. And there must be some reason why we don't do that. What is it? What is that called? Rationalization. Coming to a conclusion before you know why. And then going to look for a reason why. But I want to know is, what's the principle that says you to keep all those other laws that I mentioned, but that very last one on the bottom of my list, that if you get a witness, you don't see today. Why not? <laughs> You cannot appeal to the law of God without appealing to the whole law of God. For the law of God is a seamless garment. Jesus said every jot and tittle remains for finding the validity until heaven and earth pass away. So that if we teach the breaking of even the least commandment, we shall be least in the kingdom of God. And therefore my conclusion is that the standard for social morality is the same standard we have for private morality. And that's God's law. Now, Meredith Pines has two arguments that he wants to use against this condition. I'm going to rehearse them and, and describe them uh, very quickly before we close tonight. Meredith Pines, first of all, says that we shouldn't keep the Old Testament law of God as the standard of social morality because the Old Testament is not the canon for the church today. In his book, The Structure of Biblical Authority, Pines develops a very uh, detailed and sophisticated uh, concept whereby a canon 
is a regulating principle for a covenant. And each covenant has its own separate canon or measuring rod or standard. And since in the church today we live under the new covenant, we have a new polity, a new canon, and therefore a new standard. And so, according to Klein, the quote-unquote covenant theologian, the Old Testament is not canonical to the New Testament church. Now, lest you think that I'm exaggerating, those are his words. The Old Testament is not canon to the New Testament church. Now, his colleagues, in reviewing his book, have justly said that is an awfully harsh conclusion for a covenant theologian to come to. Doesn't that sound rather dispensational to you? I don't care what the language is, that's a dispensational conclusion. But now look, Klein's no, um, no schoolboy either. And he realizes that saying that sort of thing can get him into a lot of trouble and it won't stir up a lot that's found in the New Testament. And so what does he do? He then begins to qualify what he thinks the essence of the canonical or the covenantal canon is. What is the distinguishing mark of a covenant canon according to Paul? Well, he says, in the Bible we find faith norms and we find life norms. That is, we find teachings and concepts relating to faith and redemption, we find teachings and concepts directing life. He says, the determining principle and characteristic mark of a covenant canon is not the faith norm. Right? That's not what's distinctive to a canon or a covenant or the faith norm. So wants to say the Old Testament and New Testament are the same faith norm. That's good. Because if he didn't, he would have a real hard time retaining his ordination in the Presbyterian Church. But I don't mean to suggest that. I hope, you know, that uh, uh, you might. I don't mean that's his motivation and to a fine fanatic conviction. If he believes that, he'd say it. But he knows that there is a unity in terms of redemption and faith between Old and New Testament. He also believes that there is a unity with respect to individual life norms. That is, the ethical norms for individuals are the same in Old and New Testament. And so he says the distinguishing mark of a covenant canon is not the individual life norms. And so what's left to him? The distinguishing mark of a covenant canon are the social life norms of the people of the town, the people of the covenant. All right? Some of you people are looking at this you're not following this. Maybe I've got a diagram it. What Klein is saying is that each covenant has its own particular canon. Okay, so there's a, a relationship between covenants and canons. However, what is distinctive to the canon of a particular covenant is not the face norm, not the matters of faith and redemption, not the matters of individual life and direction, but rather the distinctive mark of a covenant canon are the social life norms. All right, now, in so doing, he protects himself from most of the implications of dispensationalism. Having said, the Old Testament is not canon to the New Testament church. What he really is saying in the long run, this is what he gets to in his article, is that he means that the social life norms of the Old Testament covenant canon are not for the church. Alright? So he saves himself from dispensationalism by an individual morality and faith norms, and he says that what is distinctive to the covenant canon of the social life norms. Now what's the problem? The problem is this. 
Brian wants to argue that the Old Testament standards for society are not binding today. And he says that they're not binding today because today we have a new covenant canon. Which is to say, by means of this definition that he's already given up here, today we have a new set of social life norms. Not individual life norms, mind you, social life norms, because that's what's distinctive to a covenant canon. Anybody who had no logic class would be able to tell me what's wrong with that argument. It's a circular argument. The conclusion is precisely what is stated in the premise. That's just what he means by a covenant canon. That there are different social life norms. And therefore, if his argument is we don't have the same social life norms as the Old Testament because we don't have the canon of the Old Testament, which is to say we don't have the social life norms of the Old Testament, he hasn't given me an argument, he simply restated his conclusion. I believe A because I believe A. Which is to say, this whole thing about social life norms and covenant canons is circular. And as circular, it gives us no grounds to believe it at all. Alright, let's look quickly before we leave now at the second way Klein tries to argue against our thesis about the Old Testament standard binding our society. He claims that the Old Testament ex uh, expresses an intrusion of the ethic of the final judgment. The Old Testament is an intrusion of the ethic of the final day. The ethic of final judgment. You go blind looking at these things. What he means by that is, if you look at the Old Testament um, holy war, the holy war, what is holy war? You wipe out all your opposition. No man, woman, or child, or beast, cattle, anything is allowed to live. It's uh, a total raising of the culture that you're taking over. And this holy war, Prime says, is legitimate because what that is, is it's taking the standards of God's final, ultimate, irremediable judgment and intruding them backwards into history. These are the standards of the final judgment. These are the standards of hellfire being, to, being brought to bear in culture. Because it's an intrusion of the final judgment, you see, before the time. That's why it's intruded. It's intruded backwards from uh, the final day into the experience of Israel. And therefore, Israel had higher social standards than we need to have today because those social standards were the standards of the final judgment. This was an intrusion asset, is what he's saying. Alright, so you take the standards of the final day and move them back into the period of the Old Testament. The New Testament, however, is not included here. So you have the final judgment standards, final standards of God, included backwards into the Old Testament. By the way, just that little chart tells you something about the vague dispensationalism of this. What does the New Testament become? A parenthesis, exactly. But apart from that, that's just an interesting um, parallel to dispensationalism. I want to make four very quick points. The first is that that is a claim that is not accurate. It is simply not accurate. Totally apart from the other thing to say, which are even more devastating, I hope. It is just not accurate to say that the Old Testament expresses the standards of the final day. And how do you know that? 
That's one way, and this is the second way now. According to the Old Testament social standards, what happens to a thief? Is he executed? What will happen to the thief on the day of final judgment? The client's trying to say the reason they executed witches and homosexuals and uh, uh, idolaters and Sabbath breakers and things like that is because that's the reflection of what God will do to these sinners on the final day. He will execute them in hell. Final, irremedial, eternal judgment. And that standard of final judgment is inserted into the Old Testament social system. But that's not true, don't you see? Because then all crimes would take what? Capital punishment. This is an internal critique of crime. I'm going to externally critique it in a minute. I'm saying, even if I bought what Prime said about covenant canons and intrigues and all that, the system is inconsistent. Because if this is the ethic of the final day, all crimes and all sins would be covered as crimes, and they would all take capital punishment. Even covetousness would be judged in society. But that's impossible. On the final day, it's not impossible, but it's impossible in history. And so, first of all, the claim's just not accurate. And it's supposed to be generalizing with an inaccurate premise. The conclusion is false, too. But secondly, more importantly, what does it really mean to say that the standards of the final day have been intruded backwards into history? I don't think before the days of Star Trek, the theologians would have talked this way. I really don't. The whole idea of time war, you know, standards of the future being intruded backwards in time, I don't believe that makes philosophical sense to say that the future standard has been intruded backwards. That's not the future standard if it's the standard in history. It's the historical standard. And to say it's intruded backwards at best must mean it reflects what will happen in the final day. But the historical standard is typological of what will happen in the final day. But now, let's move on thirdly, if what he means by intrusion is typology, that the Old Testament is typological of the final standards of God, then what we have here is the execution of a person is typological of the final judgment, and yet it is still historically to be done. Alright? The execution of a homosexual is typological of the final judgment, using crime's premise. Uh, again, it's, it's the most favorable interpretation. But the point is, the fact that it was typological of the final judgment didn't mean that it wasn't to be performed historically. It was to be performed historically precisely as a type of the coming reality. Once you grant that, my question is, why cannot the execution of homosexuals today continue to be typological of the final judgment? See, once you interpret this in some way that makes sense, there's no reason why there should be a difference between Old Testament and New Testament. Things we do in the New Testament are still typological of the coming day, but yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Ray has mentioned a good example here. Myers and Sapphira were executed directly because of lying to the Holy Spirit, which is what's going to happen in the final day for all liars. So why should it be impossible for us in the New Testament to use those social norms just because they were typological in the Old Testament of the final judgment? But the, in other words, once you grant this interpretation to his system, he doesn't have discontinuity between Old and New Testament. If you grant him another interpretation, I'm not sure that it makes sense. And it certainly is an accurate. And finally, and this is, I think, the heaviest argument, I promise I'll only take a couple minutes. Hebrews 2, verse 2, teaches us rather clearly 
The word of God spoken to an angel proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience receives a just recompense of reward. Speaking of the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews says, that word ordained to angels, which is the law of Mount Sinai, that law is steadfast, because every transgression and recompense receives a just recompense. The standards of social theology of the Old Testament were precisely what just recompense demanded. By the way, if you don't grant that, then you can't go on to the author of your conclusion. How can we escape in the human threats to greater salvation? If God used unjust standards in the Old Testament, there's no reason to expect that he's going to justly condemn those who don't believe the gospel today. You may not like that argument. It's uncomfortable for non theonomists but that's the argument of the author of Hebrews. It's just because every transgression of the Old Testament received the just recompense of the Lord. It's just because we know God never gives us uh, punishment that's not just, that you can expect his justice to be done for unbelievers. Now, if the Old Testament penal code was an expression of God's unchanging justice, in order to find different things we should keep that penal code today, then we have to ask, would God in the Old Testament do more than what justice requires? I'd like you in the New Testament to be less than what justice requires. And that's the point of the dilemma that not even the ingenuity of merit of crime is going to be able to go off. If God gave unjust standards, in, he gave unjust standards in the Old Testament, if he demanded more than what justice and equity would require. And if the Old Testament standard was just, and he doesn't want it followed today, then he's asking for less than justice to be done. And in either case, God is convicted of being unjust. And with that, I think you can see all of the off, uh, all, all of the absurd conclusions that can be drawn down theologically if God is unjust. But the author of Hebrews says God was just. God's not simply just when it comes to condemning believers for all, uh, unbelievers for all eternity. God is just in every penal sense of gives, every transgression, which is a just recompense of reward. And so my final point is that Meredith claims Adam the Bruton presents the theonomic social principle on that contrary to the word of God. Not perfectly so, but that's where it comes out. And um, we don't have the freedom to believe that inclusion of it, whatever it means, if it teaches us something contrary to what God in his word says. And notice that my argument comes from the New Testament, not from the Old, so I haven't begged the question. All right, let's just summarize what we said tonight now. We finish our, our segment on the law, law and liberty, law and love, and laws and conflict, allegedly. And then we've talked about Christ and culture, how there's a battle between humanism and theism, or various attitudes about Christ towards culture, whether Christ is against it, or Christ is formed by culture, or Christ transforms culture. We've seen how the cultural mandate has a priority, and yet the evangelical mandate has a priority. And we've argued at some length that the standard for social ethics must be the same standard for private ethics, and that's the law of God. We've also talked about narrative science disagreement with that and why it's not convincing. Next week, I am going to go ahead and take the time necessary in the first hour to talk about church and state and capital punishment because there are issues that I don't think you'll want to miss, and uh, once we have to touch, this is so crucial today. And then, uh, Lord willing, we'll go on in the second half of our uh, class to talk about the first two commandments.